Well, I'm happy to be back with you guys tonight. Um, I miss this. This is refreshing for me. It's always fun to get into the scriptures with you guys and talk about Jesus and what's going on. And uh, I don't know how many of you have been here. I haven't been here for the past two weeks, but we've been going through a series on the gospel. And so uh, the gospel is simply means good news. And when the Bible is using that word gospel, it's specifically talking about news referring to the coming of Jesus, that Jesus came and lived this amazing, perfect life, died in our place, and and rose from the dead. And, And because Jesus rose from the dead, he now sits at the right hand of God. And the reason why this is such good news is because through Jesus, we now have access to a holy and perfect God that we didn't have access to before. And so the first week that we were here, um, Taylor, I don't know if you remember this, but my buddy Taylor came in and he talked about the good news and he talked about basically what it means for us as the people of God to have our lives revolving around and centered on the good news of Jesus. And that many times when we think about things like the resurrection, when we think about things that you hear about in church all the time, Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection, these things can kind of be like white noise, right? Like we hear these things so much that we, we forget how incredible and how amazing they are, right? It's like if somebody goes to the Grand Canyon one time and they look out at the, raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon. I'm just curious. I've never been. You've been? Dude, you're a baller. I like you. What's your name? Huh? Levi? Nice to meet you, Levi. Um, so Levi's been to the Grand Canyon. Have you been just one time or multiple times? Once. Yeah. So like the first time you go to the Grand Canyon, right? Like you're sitting and looking at this thing and it's like, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. Um, I know for me, it's just this beautiful picture of what, what, it, what, how, how awesome and how big our God is by looking at this giant hole in the earth and like, how did this get here? What is going on? Um, but imagine like for somebody who lived there and saw it every day, the awe and the wonder of the Grand Canyon would just disappear. You know, Sarah and I, we just got back from a trip in North Carolina, and one of the sweet things about driving to the Carolinas is you go through the, the Appalachian Mountains. And as we're driving through the Appalachian Mountains, you know, you, you just see the grandeur of God in the beauty of these mountains. And if you're laughing at me because you think I mispronounced that word, that's actually how you're supposed to say it. I'm just telling you. So I see y'all giggling over there. Um, and so, and so the, but, but, you see the beauty of the mountains and you're just like driving through and it's, it's amazing. It's this beautiful picture of not just the greatness of God, but just how incredible creation is in and of itself, right? The, the earth is wild. The earth has some really cool things that we can see and appreciate. But for people who live in the mountains, like they're just mounds of green, you know? They, they, they might see them and be like, oh yeah, that's cool. But, you know, they, they just get used to and they get accustomed to the, the greatness of what they're looking at. We can do the same thing with the gospel. And Taylor kind of talked about that a little bit the first week. The second week, uh, Tom came in and he talked about the gospel and our emotions. And so the the next two weeks, last week and the next two weeks, what I want to talk about and what I really want to unpack are things that get in the way of us truly understanding and comprehending and centering our lives around the gospel. And so last week, Tom came in and he talked about how our emotions can kind of get in the way of the gospel. We can center our lives not around Jesus, but around how we feel. Right? And we can, we can begin to frame a lot of our decisions and a lot of the things that we do with, I feel blank, I feel this, I feel that. And we totally disregard Jesus, what he wants, what he's called us to, and we totally disregard the good news, and we just go off of our emotions. And our emotions are unstable, our emotions are unpredictable, and our emotions are not something that we can trust. 
And so it's, it's very, very dangerous to live our lives centered around emotions. But, but on the flip side of that with emotions, right, we can begin to think that our lives in Jesus, our position in Jesus, are totally based on how we feel. Right? And so if I don't feel good today, then, then I'm not in good stance with God. And then, but tomorrow, like when I feel good, God loves me, I'm good, I'm great, my emotions change, and then I think my position before God changes. And, and that's just not true. And so Tom talked about that a little bit last week. And tonight what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the gospel and our performance. Um, I've heard a lot of people say these words, Christianity is exhausting. You don't have to raise your hand, but do you relate? Does it seem tiring or exhausting to try to do all of the things that Jesus has called us to do? Right? To, to, to these people who would say Christianity is exhausting, oftentimes they see following Jesus as a list of, of, of a ton of things to do. Right, Read more Bible. Go to church. Go to church on Sundays. Go to church on Sunday nights. Go to church on Wednesday nights. Go to Bible study. Go to discipleship group. Go to small group. Pray. Pray here. Pray there. Talk about Jesus with somebody this week. Give some of your money away. Be passionate about Jesus all the time. Pretend like nothing ever bothers you. Smile often. Don't litter. Recycle. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with girls that do. That's an old school one. Um, and, and here's the thing. Like, if you see following Jesus as a bunch of rules, I would agree with you. Like, that's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting if, if following Jesus is all about rules. But here's the thing, and I, I want you to hear this. The commands of Scripture are important. And so a lot of times what, what you'll hear people talk about is, is the, the, you know, they'll talk about following Jesus like, oh, it's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, and we need to relate to God, and we need to grow in our relationship with Jesus. I totally amen, I agree with that. But the commands of the Bible are important because what the commands of the Bible do is they point us to Jesus, and they give us kind of tracks to walk on on what it looks like to walk in love as Christ loved. Jesus in John 15 actually says to his disciples, if you love me, these are the words of Jesus. I, I want you to just think of the weight of, of what's going to come next. Jesus is saying something to his disciples, and he frames it this way. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so Jesus Christ himself, the, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, actually says that if we love him as his followers, we will do what he's called us to do. We will keep his commandments. So the commandments are important. So we don't, we don't ignore the commandments. We don't, we don't push off the commandments. Reading your Bible is important. Praying is important. Talking about Jesus is important. Going to church every day is important. But here's the thing, and this is the problem with, with, with the gospel and our performance, is many of us in here and many, many of you in here believe a lie that God's love for you is based on your performance in Christ. Many of you believe a lie that God's love for you is based on your performance in Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame up what that looks like a little bit. But we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 tonight. That's where we're going to be in the Bible. So you can turn there. Um, and while you're turning there, I just want to kind of give you a picture of what the author in Romans is actually doing here in chapter 3. Right. So Romans was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was an apostle, which means this. Paul was sent by Jesus to start churches in countries in Asia Minor in the first century. He was sent directly by Jesus. Jesus himself commissioned and sent Paul to start churches, to make disciples, and to help other people see the way to follow Jesus. And, and here's the thing. Paul is writing to a church in Rome that's totally divided. 
There's two groups of people in Rome. There's the Jewish people and there's the non-Jewish people. And, um, you know, like every good diverse gathering, this group of people and this group of people are kind of butting heads over various things that are going on in the church. And we're not going to get into all those, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Paul is writing to a group of people that are divided. He's writing to a group of people that are divided. And here's also what I want you to know. Paul lays out in the first two and a half chapters of this book that no one, no one naturally seeks God on their own. He makes a case for it starting in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20, we see Paul systematically like a ninja and a lawyer expose and show how there is no human being that can naturally seek God, that we are all incredibly affected by sin, that sin has, has for all of us affected us in, in horrible ways. And Paul systematically goes through these, these chapters and, and shows us so that by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 21, like you can't argue with Paul. Paul's made his case. He's convinced you and shown you, no, no, no. There's no such thing as a naturally good person because every single person has been affected by sin and is bent toward rebelling against God, is bent toward doing what God requires. And here's a great way that I can prove that to you right now without even looking at the Bible. Raise your hand if you've ever met my, my son. He's, he's three years old. His name's Leon. He's a ginger. He's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of you guys have seen him. So I want to tell you something about Leon. Um, and, and raise your hand if you've like spent time with any toddler for like more than five minutes. Okay, great. So you're, you're going to be, we're going to be on the same page. Have you ever had to see a parent teach a toddler how to be bad? It just naturally happens, doesn't it? Isn't that interesting? You don't have to teach a small child to misbehave and rebel against their parents' authority. It's, it's almost like they're wired to rebel against their parents' authority. It's almost like that there's something in them affecting them, causing them to choose rebellion, to choose evil over good. Every single person in this room shares something in common. We all have been dominated by sin at some level in our lives, and yet God still decides to redeem some of us. He calls some of us. He changes some of us. He's changed me. And so after really, really digging into the human condition, the fact that all human beings are, are corrupted by sin, Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to this. He says, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, that's Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Now here's the thing. I know when we read like paragraphs of the Bible like that, it's so easy to get lost in the big words that are being said. And so we're going to go through this verse and we're going to break it down. But before we do that, I, I want you to, to hear something. In Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. In Christ, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more. 
The interesting thing about that truth is I think a lot of us will be like, yes, like there's nothing, God, God loves me, I can't change that, there's nothing I can do to, to convince God to love me more. But the reality is I think many of us, even though we would say that, we actually don't think about what that truth actually means in our everyday life. And I know this because I've talked to some of you. And I've talked to some of you on days where things aren't going well. Maybe you fell into a sin and you're, you're ashamed of what you've done. Maybe you, you know, woke up late and you really like reading the Bible in the morning and, and it just didn't happen today. Maybe you went through your entire day and you didn't even think about Jesus one time. And you feel guilty and, and, you, and you start to almost condemn yourself and, and heap all this shame and all this weight on your shoulders. But even more importantly, what a lot of you begin to do when you're in that mood, when you're in that space, is you begin to think that God loves you less on the days when you fail and mess up than he does on the days where you kill it. And the reality is, is if you are in Christ, I'm talking about if you're a believer, not if you're an unbeliever, because that's a different story, but if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if the Spirit of God has supernaturally changed you, if God has called you out of the darkness and into the light, if he's cleansed you from your sin, if he's filled you with his spirit, if he's removed the power of sin's influence over you, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. 500 conversations with people about Jesus this week is not going to convince God that you need more of his attention. You're not going to convince God through prayer that, that you, you, you need more love as if the more you pray, the more God loves you, or the more you read your Bible, the more God loves you. I, I want the Bible and the scriptures to be refreshing to you tonight. I want to encourage you because if you're in Christ, God's favor and God's love for you does not change based on your performance. It doesn't change based on your performance. And the reason why I'm talking about this tonight is because I think many of us trust in our power to obey the commands of Jesus more than we actually trust in Jesus. We trust in our own ability to pray and we, we get our security and our comfort in Christ from that than we do the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. We trust in our own ability to not mess up, not curse, be loving to people, be kind, read our Bible more, and we get our security in the way we feel from that more than we actually do the fact that we have the scriptures that tell us over and over again how much Christ loved us and the example of him laying down his life on our behalf so that we could find life itself. I think we trust in our obedience more than we trust in Jesus. We put all of our faith not in what Christ has accomplished for us, but rather what we can do for Christ. We spend our lives and exhaust ourselves trying to earn God's favor or get his attention by doing good things instead of resting in the work that Christ has already done. God has already purchased you. He's already remade you. He's already cleansed you and called you and transformed you. He's sealed you with the Spirit. He's called you holy, removed your sins for you, from you. He's, he's punished Jesus on the cross so that you could experience true forgiveness and have life in him. And yet, at some level, we've convinced ourselves that we need to do more religious things in order for God to love us. There's a word for that. It's called legalism. Legalism. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor through our own effort. It's trying to earn God's love through our own effort. And I think it is a disease in our lives. 
I think it's affected a lot of us. I think it's affected a lot of you. I know it's affected me. Legalism is extremely dangerous, and, and, and that's why we're talking about this tonight, because we're, we're doing this series on the gospel. We want you to know what the gospel is, but we also want you to know the things that you're going to be tempted to do to get you off course, that are going to turn your eyes away from the good news of Jesus, that are going to turn your eyes away from the cross. And the legalism is this temptation and this pressure, especially around here, that we feel that we need to earn God's favor, earn God's love through our own actions. And so if legalism is dangerous, what, what is it? Well, there's kind of two, two layers of legalism. The first is this. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor through our effort. Trying to earn God's love through our own effort. As if the commands of the Bible are a measuring stick that show how much we love us. And our score on God's measuring stick of commands determines how much he's going to love us today. That's legalism. But then the other layer that I think is also dangerous is legalism is creating rules and regulations that are extra biblical. And what I mean by that is they're not in the Bible. They're not scriptural. They're man-centered rules and regulations. And then what we do is we take these rules and regulations like this one. In order to be a good Christian, you have to come to Hype every week. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to come to youth group every week. Now, it's a good thing that we're doing here. We're gathering around the word together. We're spending time with one another. We're encouraging one another in the faith. Those are all good things. But if I begin to grade God's love for you based on your attendance here, that's legalism. You guys catching what I'm throwing down? You stand with me? Great. But think about this for a minute. Like, this isn't gospel-centered religion. This isn't Christ-centered way of life. This is man-centered. Because think about this for a minute. If, if, if my relationship with God is based on my performance, well, then what's my relationship with God actually about? Is it about God or is it about me? It's about me. It's about what I'm doing. It's about what I'm bringing to the table. It's about my performance. And so it's not centered on Jesus. It's not centered on God. It's centered on me and what I can do. It's centered on my abilities. My faith in that moment is not in Jesus. It's in myself. It's in my obedience. But legalism, legalism isn't just man-centered. It's, it's relying on ourselves. It's trusting in my own strength, my own power, and not the power that's given to me by Christ himself through the Spirit. The Christian life over and over and over again through the Bible is framed by depending on God relying on God, resting on God, putting our strength and our, 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 all of our chips on Him, asking Him to carry us, to help us, and not try to do it ourselves. And yet, trying to earn God's favor through our own actions, through our own performance, it's self-reliance. It's, it's not just being man-centered, it's depending on my strength to get things done. Dependence on the Lord is one of the greatest truths that point to where we are at as a Christ follower. If you came into my office and you told me that, that you were struggling, one of the things that I would try to do is try to figure out where you're at in the sense of whether or not you're depending on the Lord or you're depending on something else. And legalism is when we depend on ourselves to earn God's favor and God's love. Now think about this. If we're trying to depend on our strength to follow Jesus, this is exhausting, Right? If we're trying to depend on our power to like read our Bible and do this activity and do this activity and do this activity and do this thing and make sure we don't mess up this thing while we're doing this thing, like that, that's exhausting. It kind of looks like this. Play that video. 
So, so think about this for a minute. You just, you just saw that. How can trying to earn God's favor through your own effort and your own actions and your own Bible reading and prayer and church attendance, and how, how, how can it look like that? Like, how do you guys see those two things as similar? What do you mean when you like, say do it like God wants us to? Yeah, that's good. Anybody else got anything to add? Yeah, it's exhausting, isn't it? Let me let me ask you this. Does your life in Christ, don't, don't raise your hand, but does your life in Christ feel like that right now? Like you got to keep everything spinning perfectly and, and then God loves you. And then you're like in good place with God. Your relationship with God is, is strong. And hear me when I say this. To read the Bible, to pray, to talk about Jesus with people, to come and, and, and worship corporately with the body of Christ, these are all good things. But those are not activities that determine God's love for us. Those are things that we do just out of an expression of joy of, of what God has done for us. We don't read the Bible to earn God's love. We read the Bible because we're so in awe of the God who would give his own son for us that we want to know him more. We don't, we don't pray every morning when we get up because, like, God, I want you to love me and I want you to help me have a good day today. No, we pray in the morning when we get up because we want to know him. We want to know him and we want to know who he is and we want to know how he ticks and we want to know everything we can about him while we can. And we don't talk about Jesus with other people because we want God to approve of our day and say, hey, you did a good thing today and get our, our, our smiley face sticker like the chick gives you at Walmart. No, like... like like, like, we talk about Jesus with people because we think Jesus is absolutely amazing. And when we think something's amazing, we share it with people. Right? Like, Endgame just came out on, like, DVD or whatever. Like, I, I want to talk about Endgame with people because I want to watch it again because it's awesome. I think it's a great movie. And so I'm just naturally going to talk about it with people. Well, that's how, like, that, that same joy, not, not, like, joy that I have in Endgame, but, the, like, the joy that I have in Jesus is what causes me to overflow with a desire to talk about him with people. I don't talk about Jesus to get a stamp of approval from God today. I have a stamp of approval from God, and I see that in Christ hanging on the cross and rising from the dead. That's how we know that God loves us. It's not our performance. It's what Jesus has already done on the cross. Jesus carried out the commands of God perfectly. Here's why that's important we now don't have to carry them out perfectly. We, we don't have to carry the weight of obeying everything that God has told us to do perfectly. Here's why this is great. You and I are gonna mess up. We're gonna fail. We're gonna, we're gonna sin. We're gonna rebel against God. We're gonna have a day or a moment where we love sin more than we love Jesus. And so we're gonna choose sin. And if we're in Christ, God promises to forgive us he promises to restore us. But here's the thing, and I want you to hear this, because a lot of people misunderstand Jesus' forgiveness. They think that they can use Jesus' forgiveness as permission to do whatever they want, because 
oh, well, God will forgive me, so I'm okay, I'm fine. Well, that's not how it works. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John. He says this, everyone who commits sin and practices lawlessness. This is huge. Everyone, every single person who commits sin and practices lawlessness Every person who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, being Jesus, was revealed so that he might take away sins. So the ones who, the ones who commit sin practice lawlessness, sin's lawlessness. But Jesus came, he was revealed to take sin away, to remove sin from us. And there's no sin in him, John says. And so he says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. I want you to hear this. Everyone who remains in him, who remains in Jesus, does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is righteous is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, is of the evil one, is the same nature, the same likeness of the evil one is just like the evil one. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works, to destroy evil. What John is saying here is this. He's not saying that everyone who abides in Jesus is perfect. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that everyone who abides in Jesus will not continue in a lifestyle of sin, a way of life that's, that's, that's chasing after sin. Because Christ came to obliterate the power that sin has over us. Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 3 that we are all enslaved to sin. What he means is this. It's, it's, it's my toddler. Picture the three-year-old. He can't help but choose wrong. He can't help it. He naturally does it. My son is a slave to sin because he can't help but rebel against what God has called him to do. And in this season, it's obey mom and dad. My son is bent toward sin. He's bent toward rebellion. And Christ has come to set us free from the influence, from the power, from the oppression that sin has over us. He totally removes it and takes it away. And so the, the call for the Christian can't be try harder. Because the Bible says like we can't try any harder. Like, like we're going to try harder and we're going to fail because we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. And so we need the perfect one to go before us to pave the way to show us how to do it. And we need to rest in, trust in, and rely on him. And he will obliterate the power of sin in us. He will totally destroy it. God is at work perfecting people. He's, he's taking us on a journey to look more like Jesus. And if we're genuinely in him, if we're genuinely in the light, God promises, he promises to remove the power of sin over you. He promises that sin will no longer have the greatest influence in you, that, that the Spirit of God will. He will take away your hunger for sin, and He will give you a thirst and a longing for righteousness. That's what John is talking about. He's talking about that there is, a, when you get converted, when you get saved, when you embrace the realities of the gospel, it's not you prayed a prayer and you made a decision and now you're in. That's not how it works. There is a supernatural work that God sends his very own spirit into the human person and your heart is totally renewed. 
The prophet Ezekiel talks about this. He talks about that our heart of stone is made into a heart of flesh. And our heart of stone that loves sin and rebellion becomes a heart of flesh because of the Spirit's work in us. And we begin to beat with a love and an affection and a, and a joy for God and for Christ. It is a supernatural work that happens in the person. It's not based on your prayer. And so a lot of times when I talk to, when I talk to students especially about baptism. They'll say, I'll say, well, how do you, how do you, like, what's God, what's God doing in your life? How do you know, how do you know that you're in him? How do you know that you're in Christ? How do you have assurance? How do you have certainty that you're saved? And they'll tell me like, oh, well, when I was like seven, I was at VBS and I, and I prayed this prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. And, um, and so I'm saved and now I want to get baptized. And um, I believe that, that God can save people that way. But here's the thing, and I, and I want you to hear this. What's that person's faith in? If I ask them how they know they're saved and they point back to a prayer that they prayed, what's their faith in? Is their faith in, in Jesus or is their faith in their prayer? If they're getting their, their assurance, if they're getting their certainty from a prayer that they prayed and not the active relationship, that they're, the ongoing relationship that they have with Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to investigate more what's going on in this person's life because maybe they might not know Jesus. They might have gotten false assurance and false certainty of their salvation from this prayer that they prayed. But the reality is, is for those of us who are in Christ, there is an active relationship that we have with Christ. We relate to God and God relates to us. We know him and he knows us. The spirit is at work in our lives, stripping us away of our love for sin and giving us a love for Jesus. We actually want to turn away from our desire to rebel against God and we want to turn toward a life that pleases God. Because we love God. Because God has given us a love for him and giving us the spirit. This is how God works in us in the gospel. This is how the good news changes us. And I want you to like, like look at and read and reread Romans 3, 21 through 26 over and over again this week. Because what I want you to see is, as Paul is talking about here, what it looks like and what salvation and what it means to be saved in Romans 3, 21 through 26, he's not talking about anything that people do. He's talking about everything that God does. Look at this verse again. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. For all have sinned. This is what we've contributed to our salvation. The thing that you and I have contributed, the thing that we've brought to the table is the sin that made, it, made, us, made us needing, the sin that made us need to be saved. The only thing that we bring to the table in our relationship with Christ is the need to be saved. We're in sin. We can't bring any good works to the table and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at the good that I've done. I deserve to be in relationship with you because we've all fallen short of the glory that God created us for. In Genesis 1, we see this picture of Adam and Eve created in glory, created in perfect relationship with him, and they turn away from that. And so we all fall short of the glory that God has created us for. And so, so how does God respond to that? Well, look at verse 24. We're justified freely by his grace. That word justified is, is, is supposed to give this image of a courtroom. Imagine yourself being in a courtroom and standing before a judge about to get a guilty sentence laid on you for something that you know you did. And you know that the consequences that are coming your way are deserved. Like, like you messed up, you deserve your punishment, you're about to get the punishment given to you by the judge. The judge is about to tell you guilty. The judge comes in out of his chambers, comes into the courtroom, sits you down, has you stand up, is reading the charges to you and is about to declare a guilty verdict. And then the judge says, 
not guilty. Innocent. But you did the thing that got you in the courtroom, and yet the judge is telling you you're innocent. Well, why? Why are you now justified as innocent and not guilty? Because God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith. Jesus' death on the cross acted as our punishment. I was at a camp a couple weeks ago, and I, and I said this line, and I freaked a kid out when I said it. We had a really good conversation afterwards. I said, I told him, I said, Roman soldiers did not kill Jesus. God killed Jesus. I want you to think about that. Roman soldiers did not kill Jesus on the cross. God killed Jesus on the cross. Now, how do we know that? Because in Romans 3, it says that God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins which means that it was God that put Jesus on the cross in our place. When we're forgiven, our sin does not go unpunished. That wouldn't be just, right? Like, if you stole from me, you would deserve some kind of punishment, right? Like, let's, let's all agree, like, justice, right things. Like, if you stole something from me, you need to return that to me. Like, something needs to happen to you. That's just justice. Justice is good. If somebody, if somebody kills somebody, like, they need to go to jail. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, justice. Justice. My sin, my rebellion, deserves a punishment. And so God would not be perfect in his justice if he just let me go scot-free, right? That would not be fair, would it? If God just let me go scot-free for what I did. Is that fair? Yes or no? No, it's not fair. It's totally not fair. I deserve to be punished for what I've done. God doesn't let our sin go unpunished because what he does is if we're in Christ, he redirects the punishment away from us and onto Jesus. That's what it means to be an atoning sacrifice. That through the sacrifice of Jesus, God has removed sin from us and he's turned his wrath away from us and onto the Son. He's turned our punishment away from us and onto the Son. That's what it means when it says an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that was enough to pay the penalty for my rebellion and for anybody else's rebellion who is in Jesus. That is the cure to legalism. Maybe you're in here and you're like, well, what's legalistic and what's not? What rules should I follow and what shouldn't I do? How do I know how much Bible I need to read? Like, we can have that conversation one-on-one -on -one because it's different for everybody, right? My wife and I read different amounts of the Bible. That's okay. We're both regularly exposed to the Bible. When I was younger in my faith and younger in my relationship with her, I thought we had to both read three or four chapters a day, and I, and I began to look, at, look down on her and treat her poorly and disrespectfully because I was approaching Bible reading with this legalistic perspective. I wasn't centering my life around the gospel. I was centering my life around obedience to this command and thinking my wife was less than and I was greater than because I was nailing it and she wasn't. Now that just, like, that's, that's not good. That makes me seem like a jerk, right? There is absolutely nothing that you can do if you are in Christ to earn God's love for you. I want you to hear that. And I just want you to rest in that. Like, be encouraged by that. There is absolutely nothing you can do if you are in Jesus to get more of God's love. God loves you more 
God loves you the same, sorry, God loves you the same today as he did years ago when he first called you. And he'll love you the same years from now. But for some of you, like, you don't know Jesus. And some of you are in here and you're measuring your relationship with with Jesus by your own awesomeness and ability to not be bad. And I want to tell you something. When I was 11 years old, I tried drugs for the first time. By the time I was 12, I was using drugs weekly or every day. By the time I was 16, I had been arrested, in trouble with the police, and in a lot of deep trouble. By the time I was 18, I was a convicted felon, and I was in court, ready to go to prison. You know, standing next to me might make you look really, really good, because you haven't done any of that stuff. But I want to be honest with you. Before God, you and I are equally as rebellious and equally as sinful. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm I'm saying that to, to show you what the Bible says. A guy like me and maybe a, a person like you who has great attendance in school, makes good grades, plays sports, you don't do the bad stuff, you don't participate in the bad sins. Before God, you and I are seen as equals because we've equally fallen short of the glory that God has created us for. And legalism just feeds the lie that you who don't do the bad sins are better than me. And the, and the reality is, is like we're both equal before God. Without Jesus, we're both under condemnation. But with Jesus, we're both accepted and called holy and given new life. And that same power of sin that's led me away to drugs, the same power of sin that makes you think that you're better than those who do those kind of things, the same power of sin that's working in both of us is obliterated at the foot of the cross. And so don't look down on the people in your school who you think are too far gone because at the foot of the cross, you guys are equals. And don't look up at the people who are nailing it or you think are nailing it. Don't think that the pastor who's on stage who has a Bible and is, is talking to you from the Bible and, and teaching you, don't think that, that, that I'm better than you because I'm a pastor. No, no, no. At the foot of the cross, we are equals in the kingdom. I am no more righteous than you and no more sinful than you. We're equals. And so may we together, corporately tonight, cry out to Jesus with a desperate need for him. I, I, I want you guys to understand that the Christian life is, is to be lived like, like this. In total surrender to King Jesus. Asking him daily for help because we all desperately need it. And so don't believe the lie that you can earn God's love, earn God's favor through your actions. Because if you could, none of us would get his favor because we've all fallen short. If it was based on us, if it was based on our actions, we wouldn't get there. Your maturity in Jesus is always going to be dependent on how much you think you need Jesus. 
So maybe you're in here and you're like, I want to grow in the faith. I want to grow in Christ. I want to to become a Christian who serves well, who loves Christ well, who talks about Christ well, who learns about Christ well. Like, Like you want to be that person. Here's how you're going to get there. Every day for the rest of your life, remind yourself of how desperately you need Jesus and that you have him. That you desperately need him and that he is yours and you are his and you have him. In a couple weeks, when Kent gets here, we're going to kick off a series um, called The Bride of Christ, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to, to actually relate to Jesus as his bride, that we have this rich image of what it looks like to be a Christ follower, to be married to Christ. And that might sound a little strange to you, and so we're going to break that down over a few weeks and what that looks like. But I'm excited for that, because what that gives us the opportunity to do is it just gives us the opportunity to dwell on what God has promised and given to us in Jesus. And it's really, really great coming out of a series where we're talking about the gospel and the things that turn us away from the gospel because we're just going to spend more time dwelling on what God has promised to us and given to us in the gospel. But maybe tonight you've put too much stock on just being a good kid and you've thought that following Jesus is all about just being a good kid and following a bunch of rules, keeping your nose clean and staying out of trouble. I want to encourage you to, to see that knowing Christ Jesus as Lord is so much more than that. So much more than that. So maybe you're, you're, you're here and you feel exhausted because you're spinning all the Christianity plates. Well, I want you to put those down and embrace your Savior tonight. I'm going to pray for you. And then you guys are dismissed. Um, we went a little long tonight because I had a lot to say. I've been thinking about this all summer, so you know I just got a lot to say to you tonight. So forgive me if I made you bored. Um, if um, if you have any questions about about the messages that we talk about, I would encourage you like pull a leader aside and talk to them. But also we have fifth quarter invite cards in the back, and we have Wandering Wednesday cards if you would like to grab a permission slip for that. So let me pray for you guys real quick. You guys can grab those if you want. Hang out. We'll have nine square and, and all that stuff up for the next 30 minutes if you guys want to hang out. But if your ride's here, please respect their time and take off because uh, I don't want your parents to have to come in here and beat you up and take you outside. I'm just kidding. Let me pray for you. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, for, for everything that you've accomplished in Jesus. God, we confess that we are people who are prone to put way too much stock in our own obedience. We're people who are prone to put way more uh, weight on what we do and think that what we do earns your favor. Um, But God, we're also prone to create rules um, about Christianity and and, and surrounding our faith that are just not in the Bible. They're not accurate. And so God, help us to turn away from legalism, turn away from the temptations that we have to try to earn your approval through actions. And help us to turn toward the Christ, our Savior, the one who, who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands so that we could approach your throne boldly with confidence. God, we thank you so much that you've given us life. And so I pray tonight that, that students in here uh, would experience the power of that life as you strip away the influence of sin over them and you give them a love and an affection for Christ. God, we thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a good week, guys. See you later.